I'm glad that you had the opportunity to read firsthand um, the 95 Theses and the Freedom of the Christian by Martin Luther. That'll give a good background today to looking at the heart of the controversy at the Reformation. Uh, rather than just focusing, say, on, on Martin Luther's personality, today I'd like to actually use his theology to be a way to get at the key issues behind the differences of the Protestants on one side and the Catholics on the other side. Regarding Luther himself, his theme was freedom. There's going to be one other main reformer that we'll look at on the Protestant side, and that's John Calvin. His theme is going to be worship. Luther's theme of freedom even affected how he called himself. He changed his name Early on in the controversy, I believe in 1519, from Luda with a D to Luther, T-H, after the Greek word for eleutheros, meaning free man or free one. So literally, and this is common in that age, people would take Latin names normally, uh, but Luther even identified himself within that time period as I am a free man. And freedom, as with freedom of the Christian and and his later on, the Lutheran ethic that we'll see in worship, freedom becomes the theme and Luther then is the one that's speaking about it. Okay, now with regard to the Reformation, I've been calling it the Reformation or the Protestant Reformation. What's in a name? I've been down south. Occasionally, used to live in the southern part of the United States, and sometimes you'll see a, a monument to the Civil War era in which the name of the war is called something like the War of Northern Aggression. Now, in the North, you may find in literature that it's the War of the Southern Rebellion. We've known it often in history, U.S. history, as the Civil War. And so here's an interesting case where, you know, we often say that the victors are the ones who get to label history. And so here we have both biased names, um, Northern Aggression, Southern Rebellion, but a neutral name, Civil War. The founding of our country often also saw a difference like that. In our side of the Atlantic, it's known as the Revolutionary War. On the other side... I've come across it being called the Second English Civil War after the one that occurred in the, 17, in the 17th century. So depending on which side of the pond you are, you're looking at the same conflict and defining it differently. Even within America, though, I have come across discussion on should it be called the Revolutionary War, where it's, it's starting with new principles, or is it a war for independence? where the same principles, the same rights of Englishmen that have always been affirmed are still being affirmed. And so there's a continuity of principles with English and their rights. Or is there a break and there's new principles? We have the same kind of tensions when it comes to the Protestant Reformation. If you kind of think of it in terms of the, the American discussion, Gordon Wood, a, an American historian, described that Whig interpretation of history of emphasizing Englishmen's rights as being the one that Americans grabbed onto. So if they saw a continuity with England, it was with that side of the people and the people's rights. And of course, there's the other side, which is the Tory interpretation. And I'm assuming that's going to be emphasizing the crown and the crown rights. So similarly here, coming into the Protestant Reformation, the Protestants are going to be affirming the rights of the people. And they're going to be looking to that as continuity with the past. And to, so to call it a Reformation is actually to say we are in continuity with the history of the church. There's no differences between us and what came before other than we're cleaning things up and reforming them back to what they originally were early on in the church. Where if you're on the other side, if you're Catholic looking at this, it would be, I think this would be more properly called a Protestant rebellion. 
a schism, a break away from the true church, and a rebellion against the authorized authority uh, of that Jesus put within the church. And so is it a reformation or is it a rebellion? Is it a continuity with the people of the church that the church is defined in its people? Or is it a break from the continuity of the church that's defined in its leadership? Even as Christ instituted uh, the magisterium with Peter as its first among equals and the bishops then being the entire teaching authority within the church. And to break from that would be to break from what Christ had instituted. I hope you can see between this kind of Whig and Tory or people and hierarchy differences that the definition of the church is fundamental to the Protestant Reformation debate. And that's what we're going to look at today through the lens of Luther's theme of freedom. So which one of these is the correct interpretation of the event? Obviously, they're opposed to each other. Well, there are three issues in the Protestant Reformation in general. There's a practical issue, there's a doctrinal issue, and there's an authority issue. The practical issue confirms liberty of conscience. How much liberty should a believer have when it comes to practices? How much liberty should churches have when it comes to various practices? If you recall, we looked at the early history of the English church and the Synod of Whitby back in the 7th century and the date of Easter, where the British church and the English church had a specific date and then Rome said this is the date that it should be celebrated and and the English church then went with Rome and remained with Rome until King Henry uh, VIII in the 16th century. So how much uniformity is required within the church? Or how much unity can we have around a core evangelical or gospel uh, center? We've looked at that already to some degree, and, and Luther echoes that. Obviously, he's on the side of liberty of conscience. His theme is liberty, and at the famous trial in 1521, he said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, he talks about how popes and councils have disagreed with each other, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. When I was a younger man, I used to take this as an absolute kind of lifting it out of context, that it's always wrong to go against conscience. But in the statement Luther made, it's that his conscience is captive to the word of God, and then to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And so, while he himself may have meant that to go against conscience would be wrong, period, in what he's saying, I can see a subordination of the conscience to the word of God. And in my understanding of how conscience works is conscience is not infallible. A conscience can be mistaken. Jesus said that some will come and persecute you apostles and think that they've done a service to God in killing you. And so a conscience can even be so warped and so mistaken that it can think that murdering in the name of Christ is going to be, or in the name of God, is going to be an act of worship and service to God. And so... In my understanding of Romans 14, it is not believing God and acting contrary to faith and love that's going to be a sin, and sometimes a conscience needs to be calibrated and brought into subordination to the Word of God. I remember one uh, Jewish couple who came to faith in Christ and who told me for three weeks they felt utterly guilty as if they had spit upon the graves of their parents in turning to Christ and away from their background. Well, there is a conscience so accustomed to honoring honoring uh, elders and one's ancestry and one's traditional religion that you can see that it was right to turn from that to faith in Christ as an act of resisting conscience, but then making it conformable to the faith. So it's an interesting issue. Um, That's about as much as I want to get into it um, for now. 
The more famous issue is the doctrinal difference of justification. That requires quite a bit of discussion. We will reserve two lectures from now for looking at that in depth. I'm going to need you to read the appendices of the Reformation debate that John Olin edited so that you could see the differences between Calvin and Trent on that and have an informed discussion. We're going to let that be for now, though you know that that's the famous one about faith alone versus faith in works. Some have called this, using Aristotelian terminology, the material principle of the Reformation, the kind of content and substance difference where you debate. At the end of the day, though, after a long discussion, you end up with an authority difference. Who has the right to decide what is orthodox faith and what is orthodox practice? This is the formal principle of the Reformation. And it's the one that's the absolute crucial one. It's the one that deals with the difference between scripture and tradition and how the two relate to each other. Uh, There's actually three positions at this time period. It's kind of interesting. If you look at Trent, which said that tradition is on the same level as Scripture because both of them go back to the apostles. One is written and one is oral. So there's a written tradition back to the apostles, call that the New Testament. And then there's an oral tradition going back to the apostles through the magisterium of the church. And they're both of equal weight. The Protestants disagreed with that, as you heard Martin Luther testify, you know, where tradition can disagree with itself, In places, it's disagreed with Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate authority over all faith and practice. It is the the rule of faith. But it doesn't mean that tradition is a a non-entity. Protestants valued tradition, and they valued the teachers of the church. It took me a while to come to this position, largely because I valued Scripture so much, but inadvertently also overvalued my own abilities as an individual to interpret the Bible. Scripture is learned in in community. And as Paul says in Ephesians 3 in his prayer, that comprehending with all the saints. And so as a community effort, we listen to one another, both those living and over the centuries. But in an analogy I like to use, It's like having a bunch of kids in the room, and there's one teacher, though, Jesus. And there's some smart kids in the room, like Augustine, you know, and I I would like to lean over his shoulder and say, I didn't catch that. What was that? Ooh, that's an interesting insight. I'm glad you saw that. As the teacher continues to talk in the front of the room, and I kind of peek on somebody else's paper, I don't regard those smart kids as being the teacher. But I do value them because they're catching things that that I missed. And God in his wisdom has tied the church together so that I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And so every Christian needs teachers. And he didn't just give apostles and prophets. He gave also evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We have a Bible. That's the fundamental authority. But we also have then the secondary authority that is a necessary and a good gift that Jesus gave to explain the scriptures, but in community, not with one being the teacher. Jesus forbid that in Matthew 23. There's only one rabbi, and that's obviously himself. And we are all brothers, he speaks of. So, This authority, Protestants then valued those early teachers. And they would argue, of course, we saw that Augustine is the key player in this. Everybody wants Augustine on their side. But there's other teachers that they would value. Now, the Anabaptists, ones that we'll talk about on on next time, Lord willing, uh, they don't actually regard uh, tradition as being of much value at all. Um, these guys are Bible only, and they grew up in a in a city that was dedicated to the Bible in Zurich, and we'll talk about that. And so the Anabaptists or the Mennonites and those that are in that radical Reformation, they call it tradition, are not Protestants, nor did they have a justification by faith alone doctrine, but would emphasize Nachfolge, or discipleship. 
And so uh, they have their own tradition and they were mercilessly hounded by both uh, Protestants and Catholics in their, uh, I think, sad union of church and state, which I'm thankful we moved beyond that. Um, but they were very persecuted. And so at least moved beyond it in that uniformity persecution state. So tradition and scripture is part of this authority debate. How do they relate to each other? Trent, tradition 2.0. Protestants, tradition 1.0. Anabaptists, tradition zero. What's interesting is the, the question comes in both, I think, for Protestants and for Catholics. At what point does tradition add to the faith or appear to add to the faith? In the faith once for all given, for all time, Jude verse 3 says that. Uh, so that you can have heresy or falsehood or error, not just in what you take away, but even in what you add, which might inadvertently cancel what is being verbally affirmed um, in practice, denying what you in profession uh, affirm or claim. Well, with the magisterium and the people, I think this is even more fundamental than perhaps scripture and tradition. And the reason is, is because even if you leave out tradition, you say, well, who's to interpret scripture? Who's to say what the scripture is saying is this or that? Well, on the Catholic side, that's definitely the teaching authority of the church, the Pope in community with his bishops. And this magisterium, as it's called, is seen as the the final and fundamental interpreter of the Bible. In my mind, I almost feel like it's an infinite regression, though. It says, well, how do I, how, how do I know I'm interpreting the magisterium right then? And at some point, doesn't my individualness have to show up? in that I need to interpret even what they're saying to understand it. They might respond to me, as in the the Reformation era, that there's an implicit faith involved in believing the magisterium. It's believing that Christ has so gifted this teaching body and has given it apostolic authority in an apostolic succession. This is the body that has given to us the canon, told us what books shall be in the Bible. This is the body that has given us the creeds and has defined for us the very faith that we value. This is the body that has protected us from heresy and the body that has shepherded us for 1,500 years. That's a very strong claim on that side. And and the, the Catholics say that this is what Christ himself instituted when he gave the keys to Peter in Matthew 16 to open and to shut, to bind and to loosen. Well, on the other side, as indicated earlier, the Protestants are going to be pointing to the people as constituting the church and as being gifted with interpreting and gifted with the Holy Spirit, who now has been given in the new covenant to all believers, not just to select individuals. And as Jeremiah says, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And so this kind of democratizing of the Spirit, a wish that Moses had even in Numbers 11, is now fulfilled in Christ. And, and everyone knows God and has, has an ability with this anointing to recognize the voice of the shepherd Jesus. And so I'm using the parable from John 10 there. And so which side is right? Which side is is the one that has the continuity? In America, it's I like to use American analogies because you're familiar with them, and they I think they're effective uh, for getting my point across and for persuading in a Hillsdale context. So, with regard to um, America, you might think of it in terms of the Supreme Court. So, the Supreme Court has taken upon itself to be the judge over. Congress and the laws that Congress passes. Congress represents the people. So it would seem like, at least the way it's been operating, the Supreme Court then is like the magisterium who has the authority over the people. And the people may say this and may say that, but final say goes to the Supreme Court. But then some of us are going to be arguing, but the Constitution is plain enough. 
it's clear enough that we can ascertain original intent with a little bit of background studies. It doesn't take that much, and we begin to understand what our fundamental rights are, both in the Constitution itself and the Bill of Rights. And so we're not happy with the the Supreme Court legislating from the bench and wandering away from the original intent of the Constitution. It appears to us to be more of a, a rule by men, not a rule by law, where the nation was set up with the Constitution as the supreme authority in the land. So which is it? Are we dealing with then a faithful clergy that is a Supreme Court that has been enabled by the Holy Spirit to not stray away from the faith or legislate from the bench, as it were, but to be faithful to the original that Jesus gave, holding to the the crown rights of Jesus, as it were, now in union, as we talked about, in continuum with Christ, like an incarnation, or is it is it then the people endowed by Christ's Spirit, all anointed or christened, in which they form together a priesthood, not individually, as if every believer were a little pope to himself, but as a community, as a group, both now and stretching over um, the witnesses left in the centuries. And is this then the continuity of the church? Again, I want to bring back, this is like Augustine, view of the church and its sacraments and its hierarchy and its visible unity and organization against Augustine's view of grace, which affirms an invisible unity of election, which Wycliffe, John Wycliffe in the 14th century and John Huss in the 15th century grabbed hold on and said, there's something deeper, more fundamental in the church than just the visible organization. Obviously, Luther is on that side, even as Those in his age called him a Saxon Huss. Three issues then are the issues of the Protestant Reformation. Reversing their order, there's authority, justification, and liberty. These are the three points of Galatians, chapters 1 to 2, 3 to 4, and 5 to 6, as we discussed earlier. And interestingly, it is also represented by the three famous treatises of 1520 by Martin Luther. An open letter to the German nobility is on authority. The Babylonian captivity of the church is on doctrine. And then the freedom of the Christian is on practice and how faith and love are exhibited in the life of a Christian. So, now that the issue has been framed and you understand What we're asking today, is this a continuity, a reformation, or is it a discontinuity, a rebellion? We're using Martin Luther and his theology to get at this. Here is Luther's fundamental claim against Rome. According to Luther, Rome is guilty of spiritual abuse. I'm using some contemporary terminology here, and I'm aware that abuse can be ironically abused and those who claim to be victims can have a sense of entitlement and throw it back on those that really had done nothing wrong. Is that what's going on here with Luther making claims that he claims that there's been abuse in the church, but it's actually been, um, it's in his own thoughts, those that join with him. Here's his definition. Binding the conscience to human authority as if to divine authority or in contradistinction to divine authority so that we obey men rather than God. Binding the conscience, speaking into somebody's life with a voice that claims to be of God, as if you disobey me, you're disobeying God. If that's not true, then this is idolatry. And it becomes making a man the center of my life and revolving my the center of my, my gravity, as it were. In political spheres, this becomes a tyranny. This is a word that Luther will use often. In religious terms, this becomes a cult. 
where Joseph Smith or somebody rises up and gathers a form of following claiming to be the, the, the mouthpiece of God. It's a very serious accusation. And it's what Luther meant by Antichrist. Somebody that is not just against Christ, our modern use of anti, but somebody who replaces Christ. Like the word anti-pope back in the 1300s, 1400s, where there are rival popes and Rome has declared the lineage that went through Rome is the true one. And the others were anti-popes who claimed to be what were not. They were like replacements. And so, if you remember, if you read the extra credit, I guess it was extra credit. If you read it, Luther's letter to Leo II at the beginning of Freedom of the Christian plays on this idea of vicar of Christ. A vicar is somebody who represents somebody else in clerical office. Very similar to an apostle. The only difference I can see is that apostles are sent out, literally. And a vicar, it could just be appointed and didn't have to like move anywhere. And so a vicar of Christ is somebody that represents Christ. The visible head of the church representing the invisible head of the church is the idea. It was interesting, one of you students asked me about the origin of this and I had a chance to to look at, at it a little bit. I was surprised to find out that this title, Vicar, was actually Vicar of Peter all the way through Gregory VII in the 11th century. But it's with beyond that point, especially with Pope Innocent III, that it switches to Vicar of Christ. Instead of just being the successor of Peter and representing Peter's authority, now it's representing Christ's authority directly, which is a huge claim. And so Luther is basically appealing to the man in distinction to the office and saying to Leo, don't let others flatter you. This position is not the vicar of Christ. If it is, it means that Christ isn't present in his church. You are present and Christ is absent, contrary to his promises. Now that's being clever. It's being theologically, I think, uh, true to his position. And I don't think Leo was amused to having already at that point um, declared Luther to be a heretic. The biblical background for this kind of abuse is in the idea of a stumbling block. It's interesting that Peter is actually our illustration for this. Peter, after having declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, the Son of God, and then Having received that conversation, I say to you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the keys, immediately on the heels of that, he then rebukes Jesus, you shall not go to the cross, and Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, get thee behind me, Satan. The very man who had just received revelation from God to know Jesus is the Son of God has now (laughs) been the voice, the inadvertent voice of Satan. In Jesus' life, he said, you are a stumbling block to me. You're setting your eyes on man's interest, not on God's. Peter stuck himself between Jesus and his father and said, no, you will not obey your father, you will obey me. That's a stumbling block. The Bible says this is very damaging. Um, We are to forbear many offenses, according to the Bible, and be patient and tolerate and forgive. But when it comes to this kind of sinning against somebody, is the language. Luke 17 says to rebuke them. You call it out and you demand that they repent because they're taking the place of God in your life. Jesus warned in Matthew 18 that to cause one of his little ones who believe in me to stumble It would be better if a millstone, and I've seen a five-foot quartz one from Europe, heavy. It'd be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and thrown in the midst of the sea than that you cause one of my little ones who believe in me to stumble. It's a very serious offense. People have done it. I've done it inadvertently. Um, I lost a friendship once over doing it, and I regretted that. I can see now it was wrong. The key is not whether you do it or don't do it. I think Christians 
inadvertently do, and maybe often. The key is when the other Christian then calls you out and says, repent, do you repent? Peter repented. I think in the end, obviously, he repented of a lot. But is if Rome is guilty of this, and according to Luther, that's his claim, he's calling them to repent. And they're holding on to their claim that their authority in the magisterium is valid. And so this leads then to our 1520 treatises. Having seen that Rome is not budging, having seen that Luther is convinced that Rome is now a voice of Satan and the Antichrist has become an Antichrist and is not repentant. An open letter to the Christian nobility is basically a declaration of independence document. Luther calls upon the Germans to declare themselves independent of Rome, the German nobility, and to act in accordance for the good of the church. As laymen who are baptized Christians, and in Luther's sacramental view, he could regard them as that. They should, as the people of God, they should take these matters into their own hands and act on behalf of the people entrusted to them in their civil spheres. So, Luther first says about the Romanists, they're hiding behind three walls. Number one, as we saw from the Middle Ages, they're claiming that spiritual power is greater than temporal power. Number two, they also claim that interpretation of Scripture belongs to the Pope, the final interpretation of Scripture. Number three, only the Pope can call a council. So if you think about this, the, the princes are excluded by number one, and then the doctors of the church are excluded by number two, the professors and theologians, and then on number three, the bishops of the church are excluded as well. They can't call a council, only the Pope can call a council. And so Luther says the papacy isolated itself from criticism, from kings, from scripture, from the church itself. Blow the trumpet, he says, against those walls of Jericho. This is claiming basically they're above they are above all authority on earth. This is like what we saw with the quotes from the early Middle Ages, judge of all and judge by none. And so the response of Luther is really interesting. He points out the fact that Scripture says all believers form a priesthood. This is a famous doctrine, often misinterpreted as the priesthood of the believer, better Rather than focus on the individual, it's better to say the priesthood of believers. Yes, each individual believer is a priest, but the priesthood is a shared thing in Christ. And so, instead of then saying that there's a special clergy where there's priests and then there's there's people, or literally laity, clergy and laity, and a division within the church, fundamental division, up and down, hierarchical, Luther then affirms a democratizing, as it were, the church that all form a priesthood and they have differing gifts. And so there's teaching offices within the church and not everybody has that teaching position and is more gifted spiritually to do it than others. But all have spiritual giftedness as priests in this priesthood. The other thing he affirms is that the keys that were given to Peter were also given to the congregation. This refers, I think, back again to Matthew 16 to Matthew 18. And so Luther was very congregational in these writings. Later he ends up, because his appeal to the German nobility, allowing an expedient of superintendence over the churches. Like all, like many expedients, they just stick around. And so the structure of the Lutheran churches did not become congregational in time. But it's interesting to find Luther firm congregationalism as a church polity, that each congregation rules their their own church underneath the authority of Christ, then um, has that endowed authority, the keys to its own discipline. So, the definition of the church again, 
is very important to take note. I'm borrowing this from the next book, but I'm putting it in here because it emphasizes the difference. It was not the church, he says in the Babylonian captivity, it was not the church that appointed these things, things that are not in the Bible, but the tyrants of the church, without the consent of the church, which is the people of God. I hope you can see just the, the kind of American language there, without the consent of the church, which is the people of God, and tyranny being on the other side. I think there is something to Roland Bainton's uh, connection between the liberty that Luther is affirming, though maybe he makes too much of individual liberty, and then the the freedom of the West in the mid-20th century. Well, just as a side note, it is interesting how much historians will claim uh, one you know side of Luther and then E. Michael Jones, I know in his book, Modern Degenerates, goes through all these different views of Sigmund Freud and others who basically used kind of novelty and thought to justify immorality. And then at the end of the book, after I scanned it, I found Luther, as if there's the headwater of all this rebellion. And and so, again, these two interpretations of history, is it the Whig interpretation and a Reformation affirming the people, or is it the Tory interpretation where it's a rebellion and it ends up going to seed into all sorts of everybody being their own little pope and affirming their own little interpretation and relativism? Well, that's a great question. Um, here's what Luther brings forward in the rest of the book. Like the Declaration of Independence, after the beginning, the rest of it is a train of abuses. Thankfully, Luther goes on to talk about reforms and makes some proposals. Um, with regard to the train of abuses, though, he speaks of the worldly splendor of the Pope having three crowns, the tiara, the cardinals, which he created at some, which was created at some point, which I think Luther says he should keep at his own expense, the bureaucracy, 3,000 secretaries, over 3,000 secretaries, over 300,000 goldens coming from Germany each year into Rome. The various ways that Rome would get income. The first half of the first year's revenue from a benefits went to Rome. Um, if somebody like was too sick and then they would say the agitator, a coagitator, then it needs, is being given to this old bishop. I think he got, Rome got the proceeds. They had a way of going around one or more uh, bishops. They would combine these um, benefices together with something called an amend. And in that way, they could then, if there's a vacancy, the money would go to them and they could combine it. And they had all these ways, Luther says, of making money. Even the, pal the pallium. Um, the bishops have to buy this kind of sacred vest or whatever robe that represents their true bishop. They have to buy it from, from Rome. It's like a franchise, in a sense. And Rome is making all this money. And so Luther says, basing it on Second Peter 2, that this is a sign of false teaching, of covetousness, of greed. It's It's as if it's as if Rome is, is a brothel. And the reason why he says it is, is that if you have the money in this house, then you'll come by all the things, whatever you want, things that I've just said. As long as you got the money, you can get the goods. And so this is then uh, the picture that, that Luther gives of the abuses. And he's, and he's very, um, very forthright. I don't, again, think that he'd be the only one that would be pointing these things out. As we've seen, others recognize corruption in Rome. But with regard to the proposals, and he being Protestant is going to go deeper than just reforming morals, but also changing doctrine. He said regarding the proposals that we should go back to the Council of Nicaea, where bishops are confirmed by the nearest two bishops or by an archbishop. It's done locally not far away in Rome. There again, you can see the tradition uh, 1.0 or 2.0. This is actually 1.0, Protestant position. He says, um, with regard to other things, oaths should be abandoned. We should disregard Roman bans. 
We should have abolished the reserved cases that keep the conscience from having to act. Um, he says that the that the Pope is not over the Emperor. If three cardinals can crown a Pope, that doesn't make the cardinals above a Pope. So why does the Pope crowning the Emperor make him above the Emperor? Nor should the Emperor have to kiss the papal feet or sit at the feet of the Pope. Kind of reminds me of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, not having them uh, kiss his feet. Interestingly, he says, after saying that, you know, pilgrimages to Rome should be abolished because care for the family is commanded, but pilgrimages are not. Beggars should be gotten rid of, the mendicant friars, because the Bible says that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Priests should be allowed to marry. To forbid marriage is of the devil from 1 Timothy chapter 4. And 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 says that an elder should be the husband of one wife. And so priests should marry. And this is only, he says, this only makes sense. We're so weak. Look at look at the incontinence. The Pope can command a young man not to marry just like he can command him not to eat. This is something natural. He should seek marriage. So here's a quote from the book, Christ has set us free from all human laws, especially when they are opposed to God and the salvation of souls. Then he says it is altogether Christian or at least um, to abolish or at least diminish everything which we see growing into an abuse and which angers rather than reconciles God. Regarding interdicts and um, penalties imposed by the Pope against countries and removing worship. Luther thought removing God's word, removing worship is, is worse than if even the Pope himself were attacked. And so taking away the people's food and word. He says, he's saying to the German princes, look, consciences are so shy and timid due to the preaching that they've been hearing for so many years. But what men have decreed, that is the work of man. Put it where you will. Nothing good comes of it. What is not commanded, he says a little later, and is concerned for self rather than for the commands of God, that is surely the devil himself. So you can see, again, he's... he's He's advocating freedom of the conscience, to embolden the conscience, to recognize these rules and laws, and there are so many by the late Middle Ages. They're not from God. These have been instituted by human authority. With regard to the Bohemians, who are the followers of Huss, who was put to death, Luther says we should vanquish heretics with books, not with burning the ancient church vanished heretics with books. We saw Athanasius do that. It's not obstinacy, but the open admission of truth that will make us one. Nicaea said they can choose their own archbishop, so let them. In baptism, we have become free and have been made subject to God's word only. Why should any man snare us in his words? Even Aristotle comes with the reformation of the university. Aristotle had been used to form the theological framework um, for scholastic thought. And Luther's disputation against scholastic theology in 1517 highlighted the place Aristotle held and made the claim that unless you get rid of Aristotle, you cannot be a theologian. This dead heathen, he says, has conquered and obstructed and almost suppressed the books of the living God. He says that the ethics of Aristotle are the worst of all books. It fully opposes divine grace and all Christian virtues. He said it is plain as day that other heirs have remained far more in far more centuries than this, even though somebody might claim Aristotle's been around in Christian theology for some time. And then lastly, he speaks about a return to Scripture, that theologians should return to the Bible, 
and the fathers who lead you into the Bible, and that I think he even says children, boys and girls should know the gospel at age nine or ten. So these are far-reaching in their reforms from academia to politics to the church as a whole. And so he says at the end, I am duly bound to speak. I prefer the wrath of God, wrath of the world, excuse me, uh, to the wrath of God. Well, having made his statement for freedom from Rome, what's the basis of his theology for it? The Babylonian captivity of the church is a is a deep work. It's a rich theological work. I want to step you through it, step point by point. By focusing on the Mass, it talks about the sacraments. It reduces them to three and then midway to two. Finding penance is not in the Scriptures. It says only to repent. And that really, reaffirming one's baptism, Luther thought, does the same as what penance would do. And so, focusing on the Mass, Luther had three criticisms of the Catholic position. Number one, it only allowed the laity to eat from the bread. He said that's that's a minor one, but it is contrary to what Jesus had said when he said, take, eat, all of you, and drink. Number two, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is that, that teaching that at the, the words of institution, the bread and the wine become the substance of the body and blood of Christ while the accidents remain like bread and like wine. You can't tell it by taste, touch, sight. But it changes. Now that's using Aristotelian categories. And so Luther says, that's an opinion. It's a mystery that cannot be explained. And so rather than force the consciences of Christians to believe something that's really just human opinion trying to explain a mystery, leave it open and remove all scruples of conscience, he said, to let Christians ponder the mystery. And then regarding the Mass as a good work and a sacrifice, both of them, he says, are in error. Quote, They have come to ascribe to the sacraments what belongs to the prayers. And by that he means good works. The sacrament is not a good work I do for somebody else if I'm a priest. As a priest, I would pray for them. That's how I do good to others. That's one error. Number two, and they have also come to offer to God what should be received as a benefit. They're offering something to God that really he is offering to us. It's not a something we offer to him. It's a gift he gives to us. These Both of these two errors are um, profound that Luther would discover them or look at I find them very intriguing. He starts his argument going back to a fundamental position in theology, that God is creator and that we owe everything to him. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen, Paul says. If all things are from God, all things then are to his glory. And we don't benefit him. So that fundamental creator-creature distinction then leads to this theological um, point. God deals with man only through word of promise. And man deals with God only through faith in that word. And so what is he looking for us, from us? He speaks to us about what he is going to do. By necessity, he's the only one that can do it. <laughs> Psalm 62 says power belongs to God. And so by necessity, he's the only one that can work. He doesn't desire our works, Luther says, and he doesn't need our works. So he announces to us what he is going to do. And our response can only be then, we either believe it or we don't believe it. The right way to give him honor is to believe it. And so our worship is faith. And then on the basis of faith, serving others in love. In Lutheran theology, in Lutheran churches, the emphasis is often given on word and sacrament. 
which is combining this word of promise with its sign. And God, Luther claims that when God gives promises, he gives a tangible sign with it. And the tangible sign with it is to help us who believe to more faithfully hold to his promise and to be more forcibly admonished by it. But really, the sign is extra. It's not fundamentally or intrinsically needed. All that is needed with a word of promise is faith. Just like when Jesus would heal, he didn't need to touch or go to somebody and raise the dead by touching them. He could just speak the word. And so what's fundamentally needed, according to Luther, is faith. Without the promise, this is a quote, there is nothing to believe. But without, while without faith, the promise remains without effect. And so, while God gives a word of promise and then adds a sign called the sacrament, what makes this effective is if the recipient believes the word which is confirmed in the sign. He has a quote from Augustine that he repeats more than once um, concerning why make ready teeth and stomach. Believe and you have eaten. And Luther uh, expounds on that, uh, just kind of an exuberant worship. He says, But what does one believe save the word of promise? Therefore, I can hold Mass every day, yes, every hour, for I can set the words of Christ before me and with them refresh and strengthen my faith as often as I choose. This is a truly spiritual eating and drinking. So, on the other side, then, this would criticize uh, the ex opere operato approach to sacraments as if just doing them the right way confers the grace apart from the recipient's faith. Luther claims sacramental eating does not give life since many eat unworthily. So, here's, let me sum it up with, here is his definition of the Mass. At the words of institution, Jesus said, this is the blood of the New Covenant or New Testament given for you for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it or do this in remembrance of me. Words to that effect. They're a little different in this and that place in the New Testament. He probably said them all and they're just quoted a little different. But it's it's a testament, which is a form of covenant. That when somebody's about to die, a promise then. As we learned, a covenant is a promise on oath, right? Sealed in blood. In this case, the one who's dying is the person making the promise. A last will and testament. And so Jesus, as he's about to go to the cross, gives us his testament and links it with the new covenant promises in which God will forgive all their sins. And on that basis, every believer will know me. And so he says, Luther says, it by definition is a testament, which is a promise and also a gift. Because when the person dies, he sets up what it, what is going to be bequeathed and his his heirs, who his heirs will be. And so Jesus, right there in the Lord's table, is giving a promise and is also giving a gift, himself, in which is the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And so Luther looks at, at the believer and says, the person, do you believe it? That is, do you lay hold of the word of Christ as your own? For Jesus said, this is done for you. Do you believe it's for you? The Mass, he says, can only be dealt with by faith alone. It cannot be dealt with as a work. That would be silly. I mean, who would, who would look at his dying father and receive an inheritance, Luther says? What heir would imagine he's doing his departed father a kindness by accepting the terms of the will and the inheritance bequeathed to him? What godless audacity is it? Therefore, when we who are to receive the testament of God come as those who would perform a good work for him, this ignorance of the testament, this captivity of the sacrament, are they not too sad for tears? 
When we ought to be grateful for benefits received, we come in our pride to give what we ought to take. Mocking with unheard of perversity the mercy of the giver by giving as a work the thing we receive as a gift. So that the testator, the person testifying, instead of becoming the dispenser of his own gifts, becomes the recipient of, of ours. And so it's a promise to be believed and it's a gift to be received. He uses analogies of a beggar. There's no boasting. He even uses the analogy of a wicked servant. If, this, if we as sinners should say, this is too high a gift that I should receive Christ directly, and I'm too unworthy by my sin, then he goes in to say, this is what brings glory to God in the greatness of his grace. And to deny it, I would say, would be an insult to his heart of kindness. To accept it would to bring great honor and glory to the bigness of his heart who would receive freely those who have been wicked. I remember one student asked me once, well, what's the, I mean, what is the, the motivation to do good if God just can give this straightly to wicked servants? And at two places in the writings in this book, I found where Luther points out the, the insight Jesus gave in Luke 7 regarding a prostitute, that she who had been forgiven much then loves much. The greater the sin and the greater the awareness of sin leads to a greater love for Jesus. And so Luther describes it in terms of right after this faith, there follows of itself a most sweet stirring of the heart whereby the spirit of man is enlarged. That is love given by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ so that the man is drawn unto Christ, the gracious and good one who gave the covenant and has now made another and a new man. Who would not shed tears of gladness? Nay, while nigh faint for the joy he hath towards Christ, if he believed with unshaken faith that this inestimable promise of Christ belonged to him, how could one help? How could one help loving so great a benefactor who offers promises and grants all unbidden with such great riches and this eternal inheritance to one unworthy and deserving of something far different? Well, this is quite a theological statement, and the, the practical outworking of it is then the freedom of the Christian to follow Christ in faith and in love, as you read in Freedom of the Christian, where Christ is no longer giving a new detailed law of Moses and even forbids that kind of detailed prescriptions so that the Christian will be free to act in response to that free gift that Jesus gave and then in turn to give freely of the riches that he has received in Christ. Faith issuing itself in love. Well, as I thought about this lesson today, I want to bring it back to the beginning and the definition of the church and to which movement is in continuity with the church. And I think about, I think Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10 help us a lot in this. It also describes the testament of Christ in his death. And it says that he put away sins once for all time. His death is a historical fact and it's a closure. Even though the Mass, as practiced through the Catholic clergy, is represented not as a repetition of Christ's death, but as a representing, making it present again and again, it still leaves it as an open act in practice in how the worshiper experiences it. And those chapters of Hebrew says that will never satisfy the conscience or make it complete. And so put away the feelings of guilt saying, a sacrifice has been offered once for all time for all my guilt. This, according to Hebrews, is what Jesus did on the cross. The entire church is a priesthood in him. 
It is not like the clergy are pulled down to the laity. It is the laity who have been brought up in full status with all other believers as a priesthood. Peter makes this clear in 1 Peter 2, a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. Priests have full access to God, direct access to boldly go into his presence. And Hebrews 10.22 says that the sacrifice of Christ, having been applied to the conscience, has its perfect tense passive participles, has cleansed or has made the heart clean and the body has been washed with pure water. This is, this is priestly talk. So that with boldness, with full assurance of faith, the believer is told to come before God, to approach him in Hebrews 10.22, because a new and living way has been opened up through the high priest Jesus Christ. The veil has been torn, which is actually a symbol of his body. And so there's no hindrance to access to the Holy of Holies. Every believer in prayer can go directly to God. And as soon as death occurs, every believer will go directly to the presence of God in heaven to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as far as sacrifices, because priests should have something to sacrifice in a priesthood, Hebrews says we have an altar, and we eat of that altar the way I think Luther described, enjoying the benefits now that Christ did in his once-for-all time high priestly work of offering himself. And we then offer to God the sacrifices of praise and to others the sacrifices of doing good and sharing. Your questions, and we'll continue our discussion uh, next time looking at the reform side of the Protestant Reformation. Thank you.